The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome back to Next Best Series, part of the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are continuing our review of Game of Thrones Season 7. And for this episode, we are reviewing Episode 5, titled Eastwatch. It is directed once again by Matt Shackman, who directed last week's episode, The Spoils of War. And this week, it is written by Dave Hill, who was previously an assistant writer on the show and graduated to staff writer, I believe, in the show's fifth season and has gone on to write an episode a season since then. Last year, he wrote episode two titled Home. This year, he's writing Eastwatch. And I have Mr. Will Mavity back to join me for this review. Hey, guys. So, Will, it is currently almost midnight, my time. Sorry. And it is not that time, your time, in glorious, sunny L.A. Um, So with that said, this week's review, for the sake of time, because I have to be up early tomorrow for a work meeting, um, this review is going to be a little different. I'm not going to do my standard recap uh, that I normally do. We will jump around scene to scene, and we will talk about these scenes But I'm not going to verbally recap the episode. My assumption anyway is that if people are listening to this, you've seen the episode anyway. So let's just jump right in. Like I said, for the sake of time here, and let's pretty much uh, just tackle the episode. First scene, uh, Jamie and Braun, they emerge from the water. I don't know about you, Will, but the first thing that popped in my mind was there's absolutely no fucking way that Braun was able to swim uh, that deep in the water, go that far out. With an armored Jamie? That's probably like, what, like 250 pounds of weight there? And then also not get seen by anybody? Yeah, I mean, that means he had to stay under the water, too, for probably like like 15 minutes. Yeah, that was... I was su- I was very surprised they were not captured. And this is the same director from the previous episode to this one, so it's not like it was a, a continuity one, you know, error from yeah. communication. Yeah, I, I I don't really know. I guess we have to just suspend our disbelief. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that happen in this episode, um, and this is going to be like a reoccurring theme for me in almost every single scene here. Um, I'm going to just prelude by saying this is 
the single most mixed I've felt on an episode of Game of Thrones since uh, episode eight last year titled No One. This was uh, the very definition of a mixed bag for me, and it kind of started off on the wrong foot with this opening moment with the two of them just getting out of the water and me being like, oh, my God, they're like catching their breath. though as if they were underwater for four minutes. <laughs> like, this makes no sense to me. Um, but, you know, in terms of it being a mixed bag, you know, you have your bad aspect and you have your good aspect. I loved the banter between Braun and Jamie. I loved how much Jamie was selling the hopelessness that that was only one dragon. And if Daenerys uses three, they're pretty much screwed. And she had, and he has to tell Cersei all of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly don't have that much to add on that front. You summed up my feelings nicely. This is probably my least favorite episode of the season, but I thought this had Nicola, Nicolaj Coster-Waldo's, uh, best performance of the season, even on top, even better than his performance last week. There's some scenes we'll get to later on where I thought he was arguably performance-wise the MVP of the episode. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely make an argument for that myself as well. So much so that I almost feel like this is his best season overall since the third season. The third remains his strongest performance. The bathtub scene is one of the best acted scenes in the entire show. But certainly since then, it's the most interesting his character's been. I uh, know, absolutely. And you know what, too? We also um, understood where Bronn's uh, loyalties truly lied. I know last week we talked a little bit about, you know, what's Bronn's idea of Jamie and the Lannister family. And he made it pretty clear. You're in not this allowed dialogue to die exchange. until I get paid. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there's little doubt as to whether or not he's actually affectionate towards Jamie at this point. You were right. I'm sure he is a little bit, but. As evidence probably shows, he probably prefers the wee little fucker a little bit more, as he would probably say. <laughs> it sounds like Davos. Speaking of which, uh, let's move over to that little guy, uh, Mr. Uh, Tyrion, as he's you know going along the uh, the aftermath of the battle here. Uh, what did you think of like seeing the ash and like the cinematography of all that? I thought it was pretty cool. It was pretty. I honestly was a little surprised, though. This episode, I mean, maybe it's just because it had less money. This episode all around was just, except for the very last scene, was just generally not as visually compelling as last week. It, it, Shackman's direction did not seem as dynamic and energetic here. The images, while striking, did not... I mean, we, we saw a lot of that last week. We saw cutaway shots of bodies that had been reduced to ash being blown away in the wind last week. It, yeah. You know, it was striking, but it was more the same, and it wasn't nearly as compelling the second time around. Well, so now I'd raise you a little bit on that because I thought there were some shots. I mean, even in the early goings here, like I really liked this uh, shot behind Jamie uh, resting on the shoreline, looking out in the distance as we transition to this other scene. I really did like watching Tyrion walk amongst the ashes. And then there's this amazing shot, uh, partly because of the, uh, the, the the sunset that's occurring, where Drogon is, like, perched up on this, like, hill, and Daenerys is, like, a, a, you know, before all the men who are approaching her. Like, that was a really gorgeous shot, I felt like. And, you know, that's kind of that iconic uh, imagery that you were referring to before. And... She gives them like a choice saying, you know, you either kneel or or you die. And she's all about bending the knee this season, which is, I, I tell you, we're at a point where we got to take a shot every time somebody says bend the knee in an episode. <laughs> it's getting pretty ridiculous, I think, at this point. But, um, you know, so this for me was probably the best scene of the episode uh, because there was so much 
complexity in terms of the morals of what was happening here. I surveyed a lot of people afterwards and I asked them, if you were Danny, would you have still burnt them alive or would you have done something differently if you were uh, Dickon? Would you have gone with your father or would you have carried on your house like Tyrion suggested? And the answers are all uh, different. Nobody gave me the same answer. And then the the big question overall, is this David and Dan still hinting that Daenerys could tip into madness like her father and cruelty like her father? Or are they trying to squash it uh, with the subsequent scene between uh, Tyrion and Varys that they have kind of later on? I don't I don't think Benioff and Weiss are willing to let Danny truly go mad. I think they want to tease and I don't think it's really going to go anywhere. Unfortunately, I think most would argue Danny did the right thing. And while it's a little bit morally ambiguous, I, I think particularly because they were the leaders of combatants. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, they're responsible for their men, ultimately. So they got to take the brunt of the punishment. But uh, Dickon, Tarly, th- that upset me because I really felt like they did a great job of building this guy up last season, uh, last episode. In two episodes. Yeah, I, I was about yeah. to say that. Like, I think that is probably the best bit of writing this season in that that they introduced a character in such a short amount of time kind of made you like him and be sad he died. You know, like, I, I think that is an impressive achievement. And you know what? he The way that he went to was... I mean, you could see it as being stupid. You could see it as being honorable. Um there, like I said, there's a lot of complexity here, and there's not right one right answer to it all, uh, and that's the part about it that I found so, so interesting and horrifying too. I was genuinely like Tyrion in this scene where I really didn't want to see men, you know, screaming as they were being burnt alive, and there were people that like cheered this scene, and I was I looked around and I'm like, listen, I know Randall was like a dick to Sam and everything, but uh, Dickon, I. I Here's the here's the very interesting thing about this. They found a way to humanize Randall Tarly through his relationship with the son that he does care about in this very, very short sequence. And despite how you previously felt about Randall Tarly, I mean, we even said, Will, that he's like was supposed to be like one of the villains this season in a way. It was perfect for him to side up with Cersei uh, for that reason alone. Yet... He shows a genuine sense of caring and concern when his son does step forward. And that that did wonders for me. I I completely agree. And it once again reminds me why I vastly prefer the show when its villains are the Randall Tarleys and Tywin Lannisters and Roose Boltons of the world, as opposed to the Ramsay Boltons and Joffreys and Euron Greyjoys. Like, guys like Randall Tarly are fascinating. This is not a psychopath. This is a dick, no doubt. But this, at the end of the day, this is a man who has some sense of loyalty and who loves his son. And I I agree with you. This was the best scene of the episode. You know, it's, it's not great when an episode peaks in its first seven minutes, but this was the really good stuff here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so then we have this transition of uh, Tyrion. Oh, and by the way, before I get actually to the next scene, the way Tyrion delivers that line to Dickon when he's like, don't be a fool, bend to me. Like the way he says the line is just so weird and like so abrupt to me. I got to just pay a, a special mention to how odd I thought the line reading was there. But um, 
yeah, anyway, a little distraction. But getting on to the next scene then, um, we head over to where Jamie first enters Cersei's chambers for the first time. We notice Kyburn is exiting the room, and Jamie's all like, you know, uh, what's he doing? And Cersei's all like, yo, he's my... Uh, you know, he's my hand to the queen. Uh, he's he's going to be around. And Jamie's like, oh, OK. And she's asking him, like, how many men did we lose? And he's all like, uh, we can't win. <laughs> like, like there's there's just no way we're we're going to lose. If she uses uh, the Dothraki, the dragons, we are completely screwed. And Cersei's like kind of acting a little delusional. She believes that, you know, with the gold, they could buy mercenaries and you know, Jamie then begins to tell like Cersei that Tyrion did not kill Joffrey. He explains to her that it was Elena who was the one that did, and Cersei skeptical at first, but she believes Jamie. And Jamie continues to plead with her, but Cersei makes it pretty clear that she's gonna go down fighting and that as a soldier, Jamie should do the same. Um you were mentioning before that Nikolai Costa Waldo was probably the acting MVP of this episode, but in her short scenes that she had, Lena Headey killed it, I thought, as well. Both of them were dynamite in their two scenes together. Again, this is a prime example of why the episode peaked in its early minutes. This was a good scene. I thought there was some really shitty stuff in King's Landing this episode. This wasn't it. I thought, um... Cersei dropped some big revelations and kind of such an understated way it's weird in these scenes but i agree she she was a steam stealer but regardless i mean like what he carries with his face is still what stood out to me i'm used to lenny yeah. being a great actress i was not necessarily to waldo yeah I, I i hear you on that um i really liked how he convinced cersei that it was Elena that poisoned um, Joffrey yeah. by saying how you know, like like think about it, you idiot. <laughs> who who would Elena uh, be able to get her uh, granddaughter to be able to tame more, uh, Joffrey or Tommen? Like think about it, you know. And I love that realization on Lena Headey's face where she just slowly has like this um, this calm demeanor and you know this resolve, and then you just see her slowly start to break down. Um, it, it's a really great setup scene for uh, their second scene later on, which we'll obviously be able to talk in a little bit more detail about when we get to it. But overall, like this this whole dynamic, very, very interesting so far. Um, I guess since Jamie was in the first scene and all of a sudden now he's back at King's Landing, I guess now is probably a good time to bring it up here. Will, how, how have you felt about characters traveling over great distances this season so far? In short periods of time. So, it's something people always complained about in the show, and traditionally did not bother me. Because they could, you know, they used to have the argument, oh, you know, it's, uh, these events don't necessarily have to be happening at the same time. The stuff going on with Daenerys could have happened, like, you know, six months later, etc., etc. They can't really do that anymore. It literally is occurring in a small time and they have just completely jettisoned any concept of distance it takes to travel. I, I, I will be honest, this episode was the episode where I was finally like, all right, I get they don't have much time. It's really fucking annoying. Like, yeah, 
it, it, it is distracting at this point. I get that they don't have time to, to spend episodes of them on the road and stuff, but it is ridiculous that people are crossing hundreds of miles in hours. So I have a theory on this, um, and the theory goes something like this. I'll tell you why it doesn't bother me. Because when people complained about Littlefinger doing it in earlier seasons of the show, oh, one minute he's in the north, next thing you know he's in King's Landing, oh, like, how is he doing that? That never really bothered me. And it's because I accepted very, very early on that storylines were not happening at the same time. Now, instead of storylines not happening at the same time, I've simply uh, supplanted that viewpoint with a different kind, and that is... We're simply seeing the boring scenes that don't necessarily matter get taken out. Um, it's like what Alfred Hitchcock used to say, you know, film is life with uh, the boring bits cut out. I get that, but it's still, with the boring bits out, you lose in the process, and I think we'll get into this more as the episode goes on, you get characters acting in ways that have not adequately been making decisions that have not adequately been justified by anything they've done on screen. Now, I will argue in defense of that later on when we get to those specific examples. I don't mind jetpacking. I don't mind that part of it. You can edit and cut from, you know, this scene happening in this location, this scene happening in this location. Then when you go back to that character from the first location, they could be somewhere else. I'm very okay with that. That actually does not bother me. There is another factor about this, though. This whole uh, condensing and sped up storyline that does bother me. And I, I will get to it. But suffice to say, um, when you watch the show, I think, week by week... I feel like the jetpacking tends to bother people a little bit more. I almost feel that when this is watched as a binge, when the, when the show is over and we watch it as a whole, the first five seasons are going to primarily be those slow character building um, you know, episodes where once we start getting into season six, seven, and in the final, we don't really need much character progression anymore. We don't, we know who these characters are. Like we, we, we get it. Now it's just a matter of moving them into the place they need to be in order to affect the overall story. Now, you could argue that David and Dan are not doing it as well anymore because they don't have George R. R. Martin's text and writing to go off of. And, I'm not going to dispute that. I'm not going to argue that at all. I, I don't think it's as good as it once was. But to stand there and say that it's not good at all and, you know, there are some people that are, like, saying the show is just terrible now. And I, I don't understand that Who level of that? thinking. I mean, oh, I just I just read too much shit on the Internet. <laughs> like, it's – I mean, it's it's still very popular. It's – but we'll we'll get to we'll get to it because there are specific examples and we'll we'll revisit this. I don't want to beat it. O- I don't want to beat it over now. Um, but suffice to say, <laughs> we're back at Dragonstone and Daenerys, you know, comes in on Drogon, and this scene with Danny and John, where John pets Drogon. This was the first scene, the first one that bothered me, and I'm going to tell you why, because. I don't understand, other than Danny having an adrenaline rush right after this battle uh, that she just won and roasting the Tarleys, 
why she would feel the need to just approach John with Drogon and be all like, yo, look at me in my glory, man. Aren't I so great? Oh, I rode it on a dragon. Like, <laughs> I didn't understand why she approached him on top of Drogon and she didn't just, you know, dismount him right away and why John felt the need to pet Drogon. Uh, I just, none of this kind of made sense to me in terms of why it was happening. I get why it overall happened. Um, and I understand there were so many people to love this moment too because dragons aren't real, but people just have a thing for animals, whether they're real or fictional, and just everybody just eats the shit up when it comes to the dragons. But this really, truly bothered me just in terms of how it was all set up. And by the way, that whole thing I said before about Danny coming in and on adrenaline rush, that shit's worn off. <laughs> to travel from where she was in the Reach to get back to Dragonstone does not take 20 Again, minutes. Again, <laughs> it's, it's a situation like Broad and Jamie acting like they just got out of the water for the first time. It doesn't make sense logistically. Exactly. Also, she and John left on good terms. Like, she didn't need to, like, big dick him, you know? He wasn't, I mean, he hadn't bent the knee yet, no. But, like, he wasn't really actively challenging her. He was pretty much doing exactly what she said. Like, Do you think that's what it is? She's on her whole, like, oh, I just got all these people to bend the knee from me. I'm going to make this guy who's been holding out to do it now. I don't I, I, I don't know. And then I almost wonder if they just, the writers didn't even think it through enough. They just, like, well, we need this sow the scene that he's good with, sow the seed that he's good with dragons. And this will be a popular fan moment. I'm not even sure... There is a good motivation for why she did it. No, and I think there's a way that they could have done it where it would have actually worked. The, the way that they did it, though, it, it didn't. And that that is the issue with this episode, is that on paper, these ideas and these scenes are freaking awesome. They're so awesome. But it's how it was executed that rubs me the wrong way and made this episode such a mixed bag for me overall. Uh, she dismounts off of Drogon. John and Danny then kind of uh, reflect on not just the dragons, but also to um, talking about, like Danny mentions, that they're her children. And John and Danny are talking about how, despite their best intentions to be peaceful, sometimes they got to make you know tough decisions during times of war. She even asks him how many people he killed to win back Winterfell. Um, and I kind of liked it as kind of a little bit of a uh what's where i'm thinking of here aftermath to that scene with the tarleys because we're still kind of questioning like what kind of a ruler is danny at this point and i guess the way david and dan want to chalk it all up to is uh in times of war you know you got to make choices just like how randall tarley made his choice danny made her choice john made his choice against ramsey even though there was a clear good and evil side there but in war, there's going to be casualties, and it seems like somebody like Tyrion, who showed the most concern in that first uh, scene there, um, he doesn't seem to have the stomach for it. No, no, and it's that's an interesting way to go with Tyrion. It's kind of odd that now they're turning him into this unimpeachable figure of unwillingness to face the horrors of war, since this is the guy who very deliberately burnt you know, hundreds of people to death with wildfire in the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Well, wait a minute, though. In season two, like, he had remorse for that. Uh, you know, when you look at, you know, the look on his face in that scene, he's clearly horrified about the acts that he has committed there. 
Um, it's the, it's Joffrey and the pyromancer. They're the ones that are taking joy in it. But I remember like Tyrion and the Hound. They were like like scared to death of what they had just done. It, it, it is an interesting direction they're taking Tyrion in with the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, what he's doing is certainly more interesting now, but for a variety... <laughs> it's better than, uh, you know, what he was doing in season six, constantly telling jokes, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, it, it is, but it's still... Uh, I mean, yes, he has something to do, but it's still weird that... it. He was going in such a dark direction, he murdered his lover and father, and then they just basically decide for him to be this just person who refuses to get his hands dirty, etc., etc. And also, for someone who's supposed to be so clever, he just... We'll get to that more later in the episode, but he keeps giving bad advice. Like, oh, I don't think he gives bad advice. Come on, you think he gives bad advice? Yes! I mean, we'll get to it more, but I think his plan is terrible, and obviously, Danny isn't too happy with his plans he's given thus far. I think that Tyrion, while the advice maybe could constitute itself as being bad, I think that I don't believe for an instant that Tyrion would give bad advice. I think this is the show forcing the character to give bad advice because that's just where they need the plot to go. I yes, and that that's bad writing. You know, it, the, mm. yeah, they're not there. I don't believe they're staying true to uh, the character that George originally wrote. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so then, everything's about the scene here. Um, what do you think of the CGI on Drogon? Yeah, so I wasn't as impressed by the CGI this time what? around. It, it will it, maybe they. I mean, maybe the TV I saw it on wasn't as impressive. I feel like they had more money to kill last episode, which they probably did. It's don't get me wrong; it's still better than. It was in previous seasons, and it's certainly better than any CGI you see in any other show on television. But, like, when he snarls, you can see kind of the rubbery texture to his lips. It doesn't quite look as convincing as it did last week. I, It's good. I don't think, you know, like, what we saw here is going to be a contender for the Emmy Visual Effects Award, unlike last week. Well, that's a good point. I mean, I, I can't argue with that, but... Um, this whole thing with just petting the dragon, while I didn't like, uh, the setup of it, I did like the moment when it happened. It was very how to train your dragon-esque, I guess you could say. It's catering to the fans. (laughs) I mean... It it is. It's, it's a pure fan service moment here, truly. Um, because we already know that Jon is a Targaryen. And I guess this is like Danny's way of being like, oh, there's... You know, there's something sweet and almost kind. No, I'm kidding. God damn um, it, Matt. <laughs> but, you know, in all honesty, I mean, Daenerys... This is what happens when Matt gets too sleep-deprived. You start hearing Game of Thrones the musical. You, you, you can tell that uh, she's impressed and a little confused and intrigued and probably wet. Uh, I don't know. So then what did you think about her asking John about taking the knife to the heart? as Davo said, and John's kind of, like, brushing it off. Why do you think, like, they're doing that? So, I think it'll be interesting since we know, and more importantly, why are they not acknowledging it with her right now? I think what might happen is because we know that John has an equal, if not greater, claim to the throne than Daenerys, they're setting them up to fall in love this season, and then next season... 
this is just another thing to th- drive a wedge between Daenerys and Jon. A, he has a claim to the throne that she has, which presumably is not going to earn him a lot of favor with her, and B, he's essentially a fire white. I mean, like, when that information comes out to her, that's the kind of thing that further does damage to an already fractured trust. So, um, on one hand, it, it is kind of illogical that he's just not acknowledging that to anyone. On the other hand, you know, it's Benioff and Weiss being like, we need to save this for the most dramatic moment possible. And I think that is the, as far as the reasoning goes. Probably when she takes off his shirt. <laughs> I think that's happening this season. Oh my god, I really don't want to see it happen still because from the just incest angle portion of it, but I have to say I am kind of warming up to it on a weird kind of a I kind of want to see them bang sort of level. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're... I do feel a little bit like they are rushing them into it. It does not feel entirely earned how quickly they're clearly falling in love. Um, I'm not having an issue with it so far. If they continue to have some more development uh, in the penultimate and in the finale, I think it could work if it's like... Who knows? Maybe it won't happen this season. Maybe it'll happen next. I don't know. You know? But I will say this. You know what uh, Love Story, I think, really does work? Because it's just had so much development over the years. Jorah and Danny. The hound and his chicken. You know, Jorah gets his uh, big reveal here, standing behind a Dothraki, which I really liked from a blocking standpoint. And he's reunited. And there's John motherfucking Snow, cock-blocking the motherfucker. <laughs> like, they literally have Jorah embrace Danny, hug her, and John is in the left side of the frame just brooding in the background. <laughs> I laughed so hard. <laughs> oh, man. To the point it just feels like they're trolling the audience with, like, how much they fuck with Jorah in his unrequited love here. Yeah, this was... Uh, one thing I have to wonder upon seeing Jorah is why on earth did we even have the grayscale subplot? They spent so much time building that up, and Jorah goes out of his way, and then he doesn't even acknowledge to them that he met Sam, so him meeting Sam pretty much had no impact on the show. On top of that... Literally, I mean, like, it wasn't the grayscale that got him back in her favor. It was him saving her life twice in a row that got him back in her favor. All it did was put her in a position to have to take Tyrion's advice, which I I, I guess, you know, like, the, the show needed that. But it doesn't feel like good writing, and for as much time and effort as they put into developing grayscale, you know, like... We predicted at the beginning of the season that it would have something to do with how they defeated the White Walkers. Had nothing to do with that. He just he he went on a little. It was it had less of an impact on the story than Jamie and Bronze little jaunt to Dorne. Well, here's my breakdown of it. Okay, uh, ultimately this is the way I see it. The storyline still can be addressed at a certain point in the show uh, by John. You know, and uh, by by Jorah to John uh, when they go on their raiding party north of the wall, they didn't really get any dialogue amongst the two of them this episode. This was more about Jorah and Danny, so there is a chance to still address it. Number two, Heartsbane. Mm. If Sam gives Jorah Heartsbane, 
then that is the reason for it because Jorah needs a Valyrian steel sword to protect Danny and be at her side when the uh, white when the White Walkers come. That's that's my hunch. So you think you think Jorah is going to survive his little adventure? Oh yeah, because I mean we talked about this before you and I. Uh, we both believe that if Jorah is dying, he's going to die with dying. Danny. To save her or dying in her arms, exactly. It w- it, which makes sense narratively. I'm just scared that David and Dan want to have a big body count next weekend, and they brought some of these people along just to be like Star Trek red shirts. But we- we'll see. There are red shirts, by the way, accompanying them beyond the wall, <laughs> other than the seven. There, yeah, there yeah. are some poor guys that are not named in the cast credits. They are done. <laughs> <laughs> um, next scene, we uh, you know see the Ravens flying north of the wall from uh, East Watch, and they see the army of the dead. They're being controlled, uh, warped by Bran. Uh, Night King sees the ravens. They disperse. Bran comes out of the vision. You know, it's like, boom. And he then turns to the maester and says, I knew I just sent all the ravens out, but I need more. (laughs) (laughs) That is so wasteful. I feel like medieval PETA is probably pissed over that. He just kills it like... 13 ravens to their death. It does... <laughs> I, I guess it proves that Bran's green seeing means nothing against the Night King. Oh, yeah, no. Absolutely. I mean, they kind of proved that last year when the Night King uh, touched him in the vision. You know, they're kind of just, I guess, reinforcing it here because a lot of people think that with Bran's powers, oh, why can't he do, like, some sort of mindfuckery to screw with the Night King or why can't he work into the Night King? It just doesn't work like that, apparently. Yeah, I um, I did. I really like getting. To, I mean, to see East Watch by the Sea too. It was very satisfying to have somewhere new on the map. Oh, those vistas, dude! Just those shots. Some of those shots were stunning. Those wides. In general, the visuals in this episode didn't impress me as much as last weekend. But yeah, that was some gorgeous shit there. Yeah, no, it had its moments for sure. Um, you know, it was funny. You just mentioned uh, East Watch on the map. You know, they'll freaking do that in the opening credit sequence, but they won't put uh, a line for House Lannister on King's Landing. It's wild, yeah. Give me a freaking break, right? You know what I'm really, really hoping they're going to do for the final episode of the season? And I almost I almost wish that I could, like, write in to HBO and tell them to do this. If they had a massive, long opening credits that swept around and hit every place they'd ever gone to in the map, I had this dream last night about that happening, and now I'm, I'm dying for it to be a thing. I'm glad that I'm not the only one that dreams about Game of Thrones. Um, anything else about this scene? There really wasn't much else to There's it. not I, much I to, like. to add to that. Yeah, other than the CGI is fucking awesome in that we have never seen this sheer scope of just how big their army is. There's literally hundreds of thousands of whites with yeah. them, which is intimidating to say the least definitely uh over at the citadel the maesters are going over the message that he just received from maester walken uh sam is like doing his whole thing where he's trying to like convince them of the threat and he's doing like his best plea the maesters are being a bunch of you know old white men with beards and are just like it's not real it's a trap and you know, Sam's just getting fed up at this point. He kind of storms out of the room, but not really. I mean, it, you know, just, 
I, these, these old guys are just so annoying. <laughs> they really are. And then we get this little like aside about how uh, the Maesters are aware that Sam's uh, father and brother were burned alive. But Ebro's uh, Jim Broadbent has not told Sam yet. I died laughing there. You Did know. you? Y- yeah. You know, Why? I was, well, so on some level, um, certainly the setup for the joke wasn't very good in that nobody talks like that. I feel like, oh, is he the one whose brother and father were just burnt alive? But on the other hand, the response I thought was, you know, because Sam was not a big fan of his uh, of his brother and father. So when they're like, yeah, I haven't had the heart to tell the poor boy, you know, like, I, I, I thought that was a funny little wink, wink, nudge, nudge moment since it's probably something Sam would be less than upset about. I mean, many people were telling me, like, oh, Sam is now the Lord of Hornhell. And it's like, no, man, he's a member of the Night's Watch, and he still considers himself to be a member of the Night's Watch. Like, he can't inherit that title. You know, House Tarly, uh, according to all the laws of men, is dead. So, yeah, I don't know how he would react, and I think it's best that they're kind of holding off on this. And uh, we'll kind of arrive back to this later on Sam's ever seen. Um... I do like that they had a nice little callback to when Sam met Bran back in season three. And Sam also mentioned that it's been years since that happened. So we do have a little bit of context in terms of passage of time in the show, which is nice. You know, we could assume maybe it's been like three, maybe four years. I don't I mean, know. That, that baby's like five years old now. So Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then we go back to Dragonstone. I love this scene. Varys and Tyrion, they're just chatting about Daenerys' recent victory and how she handled it with the Tarleys. Tyrion's drinking again. Fucking Varys drinks, of all people. Varys starts to tell, like, Tyrion about the Mad King and how Mad King would burn people and, the, you know, the Great Sept and so on and so forth. And Varys would have to just continuously, like, tell himself, it's not me that's doing it. It's not me. And... I love this character moment for Varys. I love that they actually took a moment to give him that because Varys, I feel like, hasn't really done much in terms of the story. Like, he's not the scheming uh, mastermind that we knew from the earlier seasons. He's really just there to have scenes with Tyrion, I feel like, nowadays. Yeah, and that kind of frustrates me because he is such a complex and fascinating character. And to the point that if he could die, I would not impact the story at all. His sole contribution since he got Tyrion towards Marine basically, was just to bring in two allies who are now dead anyway. But, you know, like, I think you and I have talked a little off-air about this. be pretty cool if there's kind of like a, uh, a, a spy master showdown between Kyburn and Varys. You know, like, oh, yeah. you know, Varys killed Pycelle in the books, so, you know, like, th- there's there's grounds for that. Yeah. Which would be, uh, somebody's got to kill Pycelle, and it'd be as cool as anyone for it to be Varys. Not Pycelle, well, uh, Kyburn. I was going to say, Pycelle's dead, man. Pycelle's dead. <laughs> it's, it's definitely Kyburn. Um, that would be, that would be nice. That would, that would be, that would be really nice. I would, I, I would approve. Um. Daenerys being the Mad King or Mad Mad Queen rather, they're David and Dan once again. They're kind of hinting at it in the early scene. They're kind of putting it to bed here by adding a little asterisk that says, "Provided she has the right counsel, she'll never be like her father." 
Now, that's interesting because Daenerys has shown that she's not listening to her counsel. That was like Olena's last words to her. You know, you're a dragon. Be a dragon. Ignore the clever men. Um, I'm wondering if they're still just keeping this alive, but they're keeping it ambiguous. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think they want to leave just the hint of it to keep people intrigued. But at the end of the day, we know how much they love Daenerys. There's no way they would ever let her actually become a Mad Queen. Benioff well, you know what would you know what would push her though, right? Uh, dragon getting killed. Finding out that she's not the trueborn heir. Yeah, I mean, like that. That certainly won't help things. I just don't think. I mean, let, let's be clear. I really think Benioff and Weiss are heading towards Danny and John ending up together. I really think that's where they're going. And as out of character as that would be for the early seasons, I think it's what's going to happen. So I want her to become a Mad Queen so, so bad. I just, I don't think it's going to happen. It really sucks, too, because I just want Jorah and Danny to just be together at this point. Because Jorah has done so much for this woman. And she's like, oh... You know, he's he's a very good friend of mine, and I'm like, oh, no, Sir Friend Zone. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping he gets some kind of nice love interest, gets to settle in a nice castle somewhere. Just kidding, he's getting fucking gutted, but... <laughs> Jesus, you heartless bastard. Um, I do like that moment where uh, Tyrion asks Varys about the message from Bran. And Varys is all like, you know, oh, I haven't read it, and Tyrion. And yeah, that's such a great scene. What does it say? <laughs> he, like, he knows he's read it. Come on. Um, and then he says it's not good news, which is weird because the next uh, moment is John basically saying that he is aware that Arya and Bran are alive, and your mind instantly says, oh, well, that, that is good news. But no, of course, it's like about the Night's King and it's about Eternally the Eternally mopey John, my family's alive. <laughs> it's like I'm it's like depressed. those memes that are like all over the internet where it's like, uh, my sister and my brother are alive, but all I can think about is the Night King. <laughs> Poor John, he is so goddamn mopey, it's hilarious. It is, but I'll tell you this though, John has a really, really good moment in this scene with the, um, I guess the council, I don't, I don't know what you would call it at this point, but... I do like his plea to Daenerys to just let John be John, you know, let him be the hero and, you know, believe him about his plea about the White Walkers. And he talks about, like, giving this stranger a chance because he, when he came to Dragonstone, he gave this stranger a chance to let him live because he knew what it meant to his people. Um, he shows great qualities as a leader here, and I thought Kid Harrington in this uh, little monologue here, I thought he really, really did a great job of convincing not just Daenerys, but also me as a viewer. You know, and I mean, Amelia Clark, who I've always found to be one of the weak links of the cast, has been really good this season. And in this scene particularly, I thought she was conveying a lot with her face. You know, like, even if I feel like her attraction to Jon is being a little rushed, you know, the genuine sadness her, her face reflects in here was excellently performed. Now, elephant in the room. Are you one of those people that thinks that the white hunt is a stupid idea now that you've seen how it's played out? Because we've kind of we've kind of had an idea that this would happen based on the trailers. You know, why else would they be north of the wall in a small, you know, group? Uh, probably to capture a white, you know? Or go on like some sort of a mystical hunt for some ancient relic artifact that's going to defeat the white walkers i don't know but the idea of bringing back a white as proof always seemed like a plausible 
way that this would go in terms of convincing Danny, Cersei, or in this case, now that we know, both. Um, but are you on that camp that thinks it's stupid? They have dragons. They could send dragons over the wall and swoop down and pick up a white and fly it out to safety. And risk the dragon getting killed? If you have three dragons, it's going to be pretty damn easy to come in there when you breathe fire, since fire kills the whites. I mean, what what is... The Night King has power, but as long as he doesn't touch you, he can't turn you into ice. Or, like, he can't, you know, shatter metal or something. Why don't I guess just... their way around this, though, is Danny doesn't necessarily still believe the, the threat fully. She's not going to sacrifice one of her children on an enemy she doesn't believe nor understand. Also, if they're going to go north of the wall, why do they bring, like, 20 men? See, now, this, this is the part I don't understand. Why would they not just take, like, 300? It's a small amount. It's not necessarily a big amount. But, but why would you just take fight. more men? You were, you were begging for a slaughter. If you're going to face a hundred thousand zombies with the Suicide Squad, <laughs> so what are we, huh? Some kind of Light of the Seven? Yeah, I, oh god, <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh man, I am living for all those Suicide Squad memes they're making about these guys, though. Oh, Suicide Squad, Avengers, uh, literally everything. It's it's the best. But all right, so we we admit that the plan is needed, but kind of stupid. Um, what do you think about the other part of that plan? Tyrion uh, believes that in order to grant an audience with Cersei, he needs to go through Jaime, and in order to do that, he has to be smuggled into King's Landing by Davos. It almost seems like they're planning a heist. Yeah, no, I, I saw that in a lot of the reviews. This was compared to kind of an Ocean's Eleven-style episode. Um, it felt rushed. You did? You think? Yes. Just generally everything about the heist planning, and I guess... In many ways, heists are done in montage and events happening quickly. This, while there were no montages, kind of felt like that. And the heist, as it was, was not interestingly carried out. Davos rose up to shore, and then Tyrion's there. Yeah. That bothered me a lot, actually. Like, more than almost anything in the episode. Well, before we get to that, we do have another scene at uh, Winterfell, though, uh, where we see Arya, like, walking in, listening to the Northern Lords complain. Sansa and Arya kind of, like, have this very, 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 very odd exchange where Arya thinks that Sansa, like, Arya, like, can read people. Like, she knows when somebody's lying. And we do kind of believe deep down that Sansa really wants the North for herself. Like, we kind of know this. But Arya is looking at it from a standpoint of Sansa wants it as a means, as like a slight against Jon. And I guess Arya is like really just committed to Jon and committed to House Stark and how dare you do this. And they don't have the best like um, relationship from when they were younger anyway. You know, sibling rivalry. So... I don't know. This was one of those things where I'm like stuck in the middle. I don't know. Like I buy it, but at the same time, I don't. And I don't know. No, I don't know which way to, to lean. I lean towards not being a fan of it. It felt so unearned. Like just because, you know, some we, we talked about, you know, they've left out the filler in a lot of cases. That's not really a problem. Something like this. I think we needed a few more scenes building up tension. 
they literally went from a lovey-dovey great interaction the last time we saw them to barely being, being distrusting. Yeah, yeah, in, th- there is nothing logically in between. Um, the only thing that we do have is that fight where Sansa watches Arya, and I guess Sansa is probably wondering during that, like, who has my sister become? I guess. It just it felt forced. It felt like Dan- David and Dan were like, shit, we need to find a way to have conflict here in Winterfell, and just kind of decide to force this in here. Like, I think there are believable ways they could have drawn this conflict out. I do think we needed to see some of them. Yeah. Uh, so now we do find ourselves at the shores of King's Landing. You know, see, like, in a regular 10-episode season, this would have been the next episode or the episode after that. This is all happening, like, within the same episode. And it's, like, stuff like this where it's not even they had multiple scenes in between. This was literally just one scene in between them talking about going to King's Landing. Winterfell... Boom, we're at King's Landing. Um, so I can totally understand where you're coming from, where you said before that this bothered you, by the way. I really, really do understand it. Um, I love that they mention that Tyrion killed um, Davos' son, Mathos. I was worried that w- that was never going to get brought up, not once. And we complained about it, too, when it, it initially didn't. So, like, that was nice to see. What did you think about the Gendry reveal, though? Well, so before we get to Gendry, though, I was glad they brought it up, but I wanted them to address it, but not like that. They're almost... I, maybe, I don't think this was even necessarily the writing was bad. I liked Shackman's technical direction, but I think it was his direction of the actors. They played those two... They, they played Davos's response off almost like he's making a joke. Um, I, I think it was meant to be more like... And it felt weird. Uh, just awkward as matter of fact. I don't think it was meant to be like, haha. But you know what I mean. It felt kind of weird. It was blunt. On screen. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad they addressed it. I wasn't a big fan of the execution. The Genji reveal, I saw I saw Joe Dempsey's name in the credits, so I knew it was coming somewhere. Um, I'm glad he's back. I hate his buzz cut. You're not a fan of the Christian Bale? <laughs> Where is he? No, um, and then talking about fan service, the fact that he only uses a hammer, that's like... Oh, yeah. That's up there with Ed Sheeran looking at the camera being like, it's a new one as far as wink, wink, nudge, nudge, see what we did there. But yeah, I, I'm, I liked that character. I'm glad he's back in the show. What I mean, do you think about the whole uh, Davos mentioning the, the popular meme about, Gen- about Gendry? Thought uh, you'd know. still be Rowan. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was hysterical. Yeah, I, I chuckled at that. Like, it's funny how, like, a wink-wink moment like that we'll laugh at, but, you know, the, the, you really thought the hammer was cheesy? I fucking loved it. No, I kind of liked it, too. I mean, like, I, that, I'm that i mixed on it. It was kind of awesome, and I think it'll be really awesome next week. Mm-hmm. I am worried, I'm still worried the only reason they brought Gendry back is for cannon fodder for next week. I mean, uh. he could make he could make anti-White Walker weapons. I'm hoping that's why he's here. But I think there's a world where they're like, well, shit, we can't kill most of these characters. Oh, we still have Gendry. It's, per- you know, like, I-, I am concerned that's the only reason he came back. God, I hope they didn't just bring him back just so they could kill him like they did Rickon and, like, Osha last year or the Blackfish. Oh, my God, that would piss me off. I'm really hoping that he does have some more to do. And by the looks of things, it could be that way. I really do like that they mentioned that uh, Davos is like a, sur- a surrogate father for him. And like that's really cool that there's like a good relationship between them. Did you like 
buy into Gendry's like over eagerness to kind of like rejoin the plot, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. It, I, so this is another example of it being rushed. It did not seem necessarily in character with what we knew about him in previous seasons. I mean, it does kind of set up what his character is like now, you know, he's, he's serious. He's a man of action. You know, it's like, I don't care what you're throwing at me. I want to be a part of it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but I, I, I won't say I bought it. I mean, it's like he did a 180. So, but I also feel like he's a kind of character that, um, never really even got that much proper character development earlier on in the show. I think the only reason why people, really latched on to him was one because he was tied to Arya early on and people really cared about the Arya character two he was kind of a stand-in for House Baratheon it was kind of a wild card when you know the line of succession was through House Baratheon and him being the only bastard son of Robert now that House Baratheon's dead Lannister's on the throne his only real purpose is really to just make the weapons of the dragon glass at this point so you're right that that's really all that like he's being brought back for at this point. So it's either that or they're bringing him back to kill him. I'm leaning more towards they're bringing him back to make the weapons. And and even more just because they, they knew they had to do something with him or else people would complain about that abandoned plot line. I mean. Exactly. It, it, it would never have gone away. And I also heard, too, they wanted to bring him back in season six, but they couldn't figure out how to do it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So. That's interesting that they kind of waited this long, I guess. There's only eight episodes left in the entire show. so That is wild. Good Lord. Uh, but that also gives us the opportunity to have some you know, good character reunions. And we got one between Tyrion and Jaime. Um, I like that Braun was the one that brought them together. Yeah. Because Braun, you know, it shows that Braun still has a thing, obviously, for Tyrion and would be willing to, you know, help him out. Plus, also, too, Braun's probably thinking, I'm brokering a truce so that the dragons don't fry my ass. Right. <laughs> Which he acknowledged earlier in the, the episode. He's like, ah, you know, he's like, we're fucked. You're yeah. fucked, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I was. This is the scene I thought Waldo really stood out in. I thought. Oh, he God, was, he was so great in this. The conflicted emotions were unbelievably great he he's trying to hold back so much but you can see all the emotion on his face while trying to you know withhold it when Tyrion even makes the joke about like oh you're gonna you know it's gonna take a lot of work you trying to cut me down in half with a um a a blunt sword a sparring sword you could tell Jamie wants to laugh like you know in response to that but he he can't allow himself to do so and then Dinklage, man. Dude, we talked so much about how Dinklage didn't really have much to do lately. Dude, he killed it in this scene, I thought. Yeah, this is one of the better scenes in the episode, without a doubt. It, it, their, their meetup felt rushed, but it was still satisfying. And that is probably because these two actors proved that they still can be very, very good. I love that there's this history between the two characters and it it reminded me uh once again that Tyrion is at his best when it has to do with his family any scene pertaining to Tyrion's uh family history is where Dinklage finds the most to chew on because it's the most there's there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of emotions to uh conjure up as a result Din- of that. Dinklage belonged in King's Landing like that character was so popular because of how he played in King's Landing and now that he's back, I think Tyrion can maybe earn his fan favorite status again 
in a way he's kind of rested on his laurels for three seasons and I think we're going to see him because pre- presumably he'll be back in King's Landing by the end of the season again we'll see we'll see um I, I, my only complaints about this scene um are actually on a directorial level um I didn't feel like there was enough close-ups. I, I kind of found the medium shots to be very weird. And I also felt the scene was too short. It, it was definitely... And that's why I'm saying it felt rushed. It was definitely too short. Um, once again, everything about this episode felt far too spread, sped up. It's the first And you're time also going to tell me, too, that Tyrion is not going to say anything to Bronn, or we're not even going to see yeah, them interacting? I, I That made me so mad. I was so excited for the first time they'd get to see each other, because they had been such... I mean, I loved their interactions. That's why everyone came to love Bronn in the first place. Yeah. yeah I, the fact that it just happened off-screen was so frustrating. And, and then also, how the fuck did he get him into... He got him into the Red Keep, right? Yeah. Like, how did he... I mean, so Cersei... I guess she let the meeting happen, right? She acknowledges that, but... Yes, so that's your answer right there, actually. <laughs> okay, but the, while we're at that, we mentioned Gendry. Cersei says she knows everything in the city. How the fuck did she not notice Gendry? But it's beside the point. Well, he there's a line of dialogue that makes reference to that, about how uh, it's been so many years since then. That, and also, too, like, they've, they've moved on from just trying to look for this boy from years ago. Like, they're not really looking for him anymore. And they also never knew what he looked like, you gotta remember. Oh, that's true. So, he could just hide in plain sight. It doesn't matter. So anyway, uh, that's that's one negative uh, marked off there. Um, the scene on the beach, fermented crab. I learned everything there is to know about fermented crab. And once again, Davos was comic relief. But this week I thought it worked so well because we got to see some of those smuggling uh, tricks up his sleeve. And we saw how he could very easily evade guards if it was just himself. But of course, Tyrion's there. Tyrion kind of fucks everything up. Gendry gets to use the Warhammer, and then we get that really great moment where <laughs> Davos is like, this is Gendry, and Tyrion says, he'll do. I love that. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, D- Davos, what does he say? He's like, you better get to the nearest house of ill repute before you blow a hole in your arm or something. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I enjoyed that. I thought, as far as in a directorial level, it looked kind of unintentionally comedic when Tyrion just kind of like casually strolled out from the woods towards the guards. I feel like the tension wasn't built there the way it should have been in that scene. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe that's because they had played everything up to there for comedy. But there's about 50% of that scene that's very good. And yes, the hammer was cool. You're correct. It was cool seeing the hammer in accent. In accident. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, what did you think about this whole pregnancy thing uh, with Jamie and Cersei? It was thrown in out of nowhere. Like, is it? Well, I, I don't mean I don't mean like that. It's thrown in out of nowhere and like oh they had they they had sex. No, I just mean like she mentions it so abruptly. Well, why do you think that is? Mm. Because I have my I have my theory. Because it is a tactic to make sure Jamie doesn't leave when she feels his loyalty waving ravering. She might not even actually be pregnant. Very good, Will. Very good. You've won the grand prize. I think it's a flat-out lie. Yeah, she knows she's wavering, and she's like, Aha! He's a father again. Got him. Yeah. Can we also remind people that Season 3, Olenna Tyrell, Tywin Lannister, they argue about Cersei marrying Loras, and Olenna's response to Tywin is, Too old. And... 
Olena says, I, I know like when they're too old, like at that point for something like that. And that's what she is. Ooh. So one of one of three things are going to happen. And you have to you have to ask yourself which one of these three things you really believe. Jamie's going to kill Cersei. And this baby is real. And he's willingly going to kill this unborn baby as a result. Cersei miscarriages. And maybe that teeters her into paranoia, into madness. And then Jamie kills her. Or it's a lie. And when Jamie finds out, he kills her. So, yeah, all paths lead towards dead Cersei. I think you're 100% correct. It's a lie. It also goes against uh, Maggie the Frog uh, prophecy where, you know, she says that she'll have three children and live to see That's all three of her right. children die. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I she mean, can't have a fourth child. So it's, it essentially has to be a lie. I like, I like to think that we've tapped into something special here in terms of theories and that our listeners are getting something almost exclusive with this revelation. You hear that, everyone? It's a lie. I hope so, because it is also telling that when they embrace each other, she also just has to whisper in his ear, don't ever betray me again. It's like almost like a little insurance policy. Like, if you ever find out that this is, you know, a lie and you want to kill me, I'm just going to say it right now, don't ever betray me again. (laughs) You know? Such aggressive foreshadowing there. I loved everything about this scene. Um, I loved Lena Headey's facial expression when Jamie told her that he met with Tyrion. The just a subtlety on Lena Headey's face, unreal. How good she is in this role. Yeah, that would that was dope. That was some great. I, how she casually asks, "Are you going to punish Braun?" And Jamie has this look that we as an audience have of like, "Wait, what, Braun? No, uh, wait, why, why? Don't you dare harm a exactly. hair on his head." <laughs> Like, Cersei, back the fuck up. He just survived a goddamn dragon. I won't have Cersei have him killed. And I'll leave uh, this scene on this moment here. Um, There's a great meme on the internet of Jaime embracing uh, Cersei like they're hugging. And then it just cuts to Tyrion's face from the previous episode saying, flee, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Uh, Like, like, Jaime, get out of there. Run. Don't fall for it. You should make that and go viral. All right. So back at Dragonstone, uh... Davos tells Gendry that they're leaving today not to reveal to anyone that he's, you know, Robert Baratheon's bastard. And he does just that to John. John and Gendry have this whole... What? Did we just become yeah, best friends? Mirroring, our fathers um, were best friends, so we should trust each other. This is once again like the Gendry thing of just over-eagerness and just being very straightforward and forthcoming. I suppose to John that's like charming in a sort of way. And I could see why it works on him, and I could see why they would be good friends. They even do a little callback, once again, another callback, to when Robert uh, told Ned, you got fat. And Ned kind of looks at him like, you got fat. So, like, they have this banter of, like, yo, you're leaner, you're shorter. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. You know? So, um, I don't know. Did did you enjoy this? Uh, Were you satisfied by this? It seemed like kind of a perfunctory character moment, just enough to, you know, add in a little bit more pathos before they go off next week. Went back to the heist movie sensation. I did like uh, Davos's line though, where it's like everybody's just ignoring his advice. He can't fight. He can't. He didn't really like smuggle them all that well, and he's just like, you know, don't mind me. I'm just gonna get ripe with old age, you know, or whatever the line was. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so. it, it, the scene didn't really do that much for me. I mean, like, 
Okay, so then, you know, everybody's getting ready to say goodbye on the beach shores, and... Poor Jorah. Oh, Jorah just looks at Danny so longingly, and John then comes over, does the whole, like, oh, at least you won't have to deal with the king in the north anymore, and she's all like, I've grown used to him, and you notice that, like, Danny, like, watches John leave. John does not look back, but Jorah does. Yeah, I know. I know, which which does make me worry that he's gonna die north of the wall too. The way they're setting that up. Don't 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 say that. Uh, <laughs> don't don't say that. Uh, I do think that it could lead to some conflict, though. Maybe a possible love triangle in the future. Yeah, I mean, which he has no stake in. But yeah, I mean, like, I think they're really gonna bond in this little uh, white hunt fun adventure north yeah and then like if they do come back surviving all of a sudden this is gonna kind of throw a kink in things so back at the citadel now uh gilly is telling sam that there are like fifteen thousand seven hundred eighty-two steps in the citadel and amongst all these things that she's like saying to him she happens to drop the biggest bombshell in the show's entire history that was such a troll i loved it i liked it a lot I Oh, I enjoyed it, but they were so trolling the audience. Yeah, I, I mean, but I love how Sam uh, kind of like cuts her off and then he has his own moment of outburst, which we normally never see from, you know, from Sam. He never gets like this. Yeah, I haven't seen him like that since the Battle yeah. of the Wall. Open the fucking Open gate. Open the fucking gate. <laughs> so good. I, I, I like that Sam had enough. I like that he stole whatever it was that he stole. I have no idea if even he knew what he was stealing out of that room. Um, his decision to leave did surprise me a little bit because the and this has nothing to do with Sam. I just was wondering: is that the last we're going to see of Jim Broadbent? That, that, that's what I was thinking too. Like, I, he was amusing, but why do you cast what is presumably an expensive actor? I guess to be a bumbling fool. Y- yeah, but I, I feel let down. I thought he was going to fat. I mean, maybe, you know, they might just have him around so he can be the one who ends up writing a song in Fire of Ice, which we think will happen. But, like, yeah, and just, I felt that way about the whole Old Town storyline. For the record, I think Sam's the one that's going to write the book, not Mas- not Maser Ebros. Yeah, I think you're probably right. If anything, I have a feeling that Old Town is going to get destroyed by the Night King and the White Walkers, and all the histories of men will be erased and a new history will have to be written. And the whole world is going to have to start over, basically. But, like, it's... Articulate yourself, it Will. It seems... <laughs> it's late. Fuck you, it's late. It seems... I'm disappointed that they spent so long building up Old Town. Three seasons, and then just kind of threw it away. It was kind of like I felt about Arya's time in Bravos. For how much time we spent building it up and anticipating it, I didn't feel like we got our money's worth. I disagree because I think that there is something really important in those manuscripts and scrolls that Sam took. And I think that the payoff will be worth it. And you'll be left wondering, well, how could we have done this if we did not ever go to Old Town? Hmm. So now we're going to you know, go back to Winterfell at this point. Um <laughs> What did you think of this whole cat and mouse thing of Arya spying on Littlefinger? For Arya being so clever and so spy-like, this again felt pretty, like, this felt in keeping with her standing on a bridge looking out at the giant statue of Rose <sighs> when she knows you got a contract to kill on her head. She should be a master spy, clever person, good at hiding, and she got played so easily. 
you know, it's... I was not a fan of this. Again, it felt like they're forcing in conflict. I think on paper, it makes sense that Littlefinger could find a way to use that note that Sansa wrote against Sansa, against Sansa and Ari's relationship. This whole way of handling it, having Littlefinger basically out-hide and out-spy her, didn't really do it for me. I mean, you remember what the note is, right? Yeah, it's when she was telling Rob to bend the knee so that Ned would survive. I mean, it's obviously going to piss off yeah. Arya. I, I, I dig this, and I'll tell you exactly why. One, that's a clever way to bring that note back into the story. Two, I do buy that Arya could get outplayed because it's by Littlefinger. And she is impulsive. If there's anybody that's going to be able to outplay her, it's going to be somebody who's a master at spying, sneaking in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, you had to work that in there, didn't you? I did. I did. So I, I also think, too, it gives us probably Littlefinger's most iconic shot ever. Yeah. The, well, like 90% of his screen time has been him standing in corners, peering creepily. At but this people. is the best but one. Yeah, that is the Littlefinger shot. Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't know if I'm really down for how this storyline plays out, but if it ends with Littlefinger getting his comeuppance, I, I'm all for it. <laughs> um, finally, last scene of the episode, Eastwatch. Uh, Davos, Jorah, Gendry meet up with Tormund, the Hound, Beric, Doros. They, they decide to form the uh, supergroup, go beyond the wall. I mean, we kind of talked about the companions uh, joining up. What did you think about the fact that they all met within the span of five minutes and they were, like, off and going? Again, it felt rushed. Um, I do like, you know, they certainly weren't subtle about how they revealed it, but I do like that they revealed just how much tension there is all between all these people. Yeah, they chose the right lines of dialogue to highlight, I felt. Um, it, oh, H.R. Mormont, you know, yeah. like, I, I hadn't even considered that connection. Like, obviously, that's going to lead to conflict. So he does set the stage for some interesting interactions next weekend, and it's very well shot. It did Everything about it did seem a bit convenient, that they just happened to be chilling in the jail cell at Eastwatch right when they showed up. I think there would have been a more artful way for the Brotherhood and the Hound to come into contact with them. Yeah, like, why did they have to be in the cell? Like, I don't believe for one moment, I don't believe it, that the Wildlings were capable of restraining the Hound and putting him in a cell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unless he was willingly taken, which he would not be. It would be better if they were talking to Tormund and they get a call that someone's approaching the castle and they think it might be the enemy. And then we have a reveal that it's these these guys, you know, and then we're all like, oh, like, oh, that's awesome. Go into the goddamn writer's room. Now. <laughs> um, I do. I do like the the scene that immediately precedes this. With Tormund being like, did you bring the tall woman? Oh my god, the big woman line was great. The, big woman, yeah, so the look funny. of disappointment on his face when he says no. Oh, priceless. Poor Tormund. Tormund also does like a subtle growl at Jorah. <laughs> did you did you pick up on this? No. Like Jorah. No. Yeah, like just basically like he says, like, oh, he killed many of our men, and Jorah's like, seems to me that you returned the favor. And then Tormund's like, <laughs> I love that actor so much. Now, I, I did write down Barrack's line here because I thought this line was kind of meta in addressing how convenient the plot is right now. And it's the line where he says, 
here we all are at the edge of the world at the same moment heading in the same direction for the same reason yeah and it seems like it's Benioff and Weiss being like yes we know this is objectively objectively lazy writing just assume God had a hand in yeah, it. Basically, it's destiny. You know, you know that all these characters are coming together. They're forming the A team or whatever supergroup name you could possibly imagine at this point. And you know, they're going beyond the wall for what is definitely a fan service moment that's getting people really excited. I mean, dude, the excitement already for next week's episode is massive, massive. And some of the best, definitely some of the best shots of the episode as they head out into. The- oh yeah, those are that. Um, some amazing cinematography. Yeah, the final shot alone was such a get hype moment. Um, that even it, with all these weird scenes of writing and just odd directions that the plot is going and condensing and so on and so forth, um, they still are managing to get me excited. Which is a feat in and of itself, because normally I'm so much harsher on any other show out there. And I want to take this moment now, now that we're at the end of the episode here, to kind of like recap my overall thoughts. And I want to say a very, very clear message, and it is this. You mentioned, Will, in other reviews that we've done, that the pacing of the season had bothered you. While I maintained that it did not bother me, it finally bothered me this episode. This one is the one where I finally concluded... That instead of writing seven episodes, they should have just done ten. And you know why? I'll tell you exactly why. Because they're trying to cram ten episodes worth of material into seven episodes. And that is a problem. If you're going to do that, next week's episode is 71 minutes long. You make all of your episodes in that length. You don't make them the same length as your previous episodes were in other seasons. You know, they tried saying, oh, the episodes are longer this year. That was that was bullshit. That was clickbait. The last two episodes are the longest episodes of the show's history. All these other episodes, we've had episodes that were 59 minutes before. Last week was 50 minutes, and it's the shortest in the entire season's history, series history. So don't give me that, you know, uh, this whole thing of we don't have enough time bullshit you have enough time you could do it in seven episodes make them a a tad bit longer and it's not these big set pieces that i'm desiring of you i'm asking for these dialogue scenes to not just be one line uh, or one sentence uh pieces of dialogue and even though they are perfectly chosen to encapsulate a moment I want to see that moment play out in a dialogue exchange. And, and like, the budget, that's the thing. That would not be expensive. No. So, I mean, some of the best things that the show has ever done in the early uh, seasons, the things that got me super excited, like, people would be like, oh, there wasn't enough action this episode. I'd be like, dude, we saw Olena Tyrell and Tywin Lannister talking. That was amazing. You know, now I don't feel like we get that so much. And that's why the scene with like Tyrion and Jamie was like such a breath of fresh air to me. But it was cut short. It felt like it should have been longer. I wanted more. So, I mean, it's part of the reason why like the Jamie Olena scene worked so well a couple weeks ago. Because it was just two characters talking. And that's what the show really built itself on when it didn't have the budget yeah, before. That's what people, yeah, that's what made people love the show. You know, and. I'm glad we have cool set pieces, but at the end of the day, that was not why I watched. No, now what it's becoming is it's becoming a blockbuster Hollywood action film devoid of nuance and 
oh god it's such a mirror for hollywood it kills me <laughs> yeah no i know like we uh, now it, we are literally just saying oh well we can forgive the the lazy writing because the spectacle is so good that's what people say about transformers that's not what the show is supposed to be but I'm still going to eat it up next week when it happens. Yeah, that's true. We're, we're a bunch of hypocrites. We're going to absolutely love the show. 10 out of 10 rating next week, probably. I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, rating for this week, though. 6.5. My least favorite of the season. You know, it's interesting because I thought about giving this, like, tied for, like, my lowest grade ever. But I've, re- I've rewatched the episode two times since it aired, so I've seen it three times now. And... Um, I'm going to just stick with an 8. You're going to give it an 8? It's my lowest rated of the season. Um, and the lowest rating I've ever given to a Game of Thrones episode is a 7. So I'm going with an 8, though, because there are still certain things that, while you may be dissatisfied with them now, I'm, I'm taking the let's wait and see approach in terms of how certain the let's things... let's wait and see approach in a lot of things I've called out in previous episodes has turned out to be like, oh... Never mind, Matt was more clever than the writers. Yeah, well, I, I have high hopes. I do have high hopes. Um, but yeah, this is definitely, uh, in the grand scheme of things, I, and I know people really love this episode, and they feel like a lot of things really happened, and they may think that we're being pretentious with some of these things that we're calling out. But bottom line is David and Dan did not sign up to write fan fiction. They signed up to adapt a book series, and that book series is not there for them to do that anymore and we're finally starting to see i think the cracks i think they're beginning to show now in the show uh at this point so i'm hoping that the spectacle next week can pull us back in i'm hoping it delivers upon strong character moments but most importantly of all i'm hoping that 71 minute runtime allows for the episode to breathe a little bit more and same thing with the finale as well i think that the show has the potential chance to do what season six did. Remember how we felt after episode eight last year? And then nine yes. and ten just came along and just fucking one, two KO punched us out. I, I, I'm hoping that episode six and seven can do the same with season seven. Uh, best of, best of categories here. Uh, who gave the best performance? I think Waldo this week. I'm going with Peter Dinklage. Uh, best line of the episode. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. Best line of dialogue. I have a tie. Do you want to go first? Definitely, yes, because they're both said by the same character, and that's Davos Seaworth. Uh, first one, I thought you might still be rowing. And <laughs> I love this line because it's just so true to life, and it might be like m- one of my favorite quotes in anything ever. Nothing fucks you harder than time. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> I think I'll throw another Davos one in there. His stupid line about, like, it's going to rip a hole in your armor just made me laugh so much. <laughs> Go right the through the chain mail. <laughs> so absurd. Uh, it was great. And it also plays back into Davos being a creepy old man again, talking about <laughs> erections. Well, I, I don't know where that came from. He was like a father figure for so long. And he is still. He's a father figure to Gendry. Just saying, they just decided to make him a creepy old man on top of it. <laughs> Best scene of the episode. Danny burning the Tarleys. Yeah, without a doubt. Best individual moment. Mm. I'm going with Tyrion and Jamie's emotions. Yeah, I... God damn it, I think that would be the most viable one to go with. 
Um, I'm gonna go with the the boys exiting the wall then and heading out into the snow. That gave me pun intended chills. Best shot of the episode. Wides going over East Watch at the sea. I thought about that one myself. Um, mine is a tie between that iconic uh, shot of Littlefinger and, of course, the final shot of the episode. Yeah, that's fucking amazing. Uh, best death, um, Randall and Dickon, I guess. Yeah, basically the only choices, yeah. Yeah. The Ravens. <laughs> <laughs> the Warhammer, which probably just crushed the guy's face. I don't know if he killed him. I think he was dead. Yeah, probably. Do you want to take a look at the preview for next week? I mean, we kind of I talked it up. I would love to. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? Would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah why not? It's, it's badass. Let's play it. Death is the enemy. The first enemy and the last. The enemy always wins. And we still need to fight him. You're scared, aren't you? What are you scared of? Oh my god. That trailer was fucking sick. Dude. Nothing but spectacle, but it looks awesome. Dude. Dude, oh my god. I blew I just blew a hole in my chainmail. That's what happened. (laughs) With the fermented crab. Um the it looks like we're not gonna be in King's Landing next week. Which is interesting yeah, to me because it's... Yeah, the issue with the map does. It's interesting that, like, certain characters are going to appear in every episode this year, and there's such limited episodes, and certain characters obviously won't, like Cersei and Jamie, I suppose. Um, but it looks like we're going to be in the north. We're going to see uh, the continuation of this whole thing with Arya and Sansa. And uh, we're going to see Danny and Tyrion back at Dragonstone, probably worrying about Jon and what's going on with them. But I guess the bulk of this episode will definitely be in the North, where hopefully we'll get some really great character moments. I'm hoping between those seven guys. Yeah, I, I mean, with like 70 minutes, I have to assume that we're going to get some character development along with this, which is what makes the battles like Blackwater stand out to me. If you have more than just awesome spectacle, if you have character development, and they certainly have potential they've set up with these characters and their just complex histories together. And then obviously, you know, it's probably got like the budget of a feature film. So spectacle-wise, it's going to be unlike... It took three months to film. It's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen. I really hope my expectations are not too high. Because I have to remind myself that this is not a battle with like thousands of men versus thousands of men. This is literally like 15 guys versus thousands. What take... But yeah, but like what take... What took three months to film if it's, you know, like it's it's got to be impressive. It took longer than Battle of the Bastards to film. It probably takes place in segments. You know, it's probably not just one scene. It's probably something that's drawn out. Yeah. Um, because uh, you notice that, like, in the trailer, they're, like, on the island or, like, a raised hill or something like that. Yeah, and then separately they're in, like, a wide field running and stuff. Yeah. I've heard some people say, because if you look closely in the preview, you could see them running towards this hill, and it looks like it's on top of uh, ice. Mm. Um, so one thing that somebody uh, commented on to me was, oh, do you think it's possible that the ice breaks and maybe because the whites oh, can't shit. swim, like they're they're stuck? 
and like maybe that's the you know in the trailer where you see the Night King like coming that's forward, a good call. like maybe the Night King's just staring John down and they're waiting for the water to freeze up again so that they could come at them. Oh shit, that's interesting. You know, so oh, there, there's all damn. these little things, little and like ways to the, drag the it out. Shaped like an arrowhead. Yeah, which somebody uh, said to me today. They like sent me a photo and they said, "Dude, did you notice that this is the same mountain in the um, vision the that Bran has?" The flashback. Yeah. Yeah, when they show uh, the Night King being created, it's just shown from an opposite uh, end of the mountain, basically. But I thought I was like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "That's such a cool like little uh, you know little." reference that's that's awesome to just tie everything in with each other so who dies yeah i was about to ask that question um uh my money's on torment god damn it barrack and doros yeah and I, I know you had mentioned off air you think there's going to be a situation where somebody major dies and then Thoros sacrifices his life oh no barrack barrack does barrack sacrifices his life to uh, yeah, because because uh, if Barrick's gonna die, uh, Barrick Barrick's whole thing is that the Lord of Light has given him purpose to do something. So if John dies and we're all freaking out, what better purpose is there than for the Lord of Light to give Barrick the opportunity to resurrect Azora High? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, I, I will feel kind of annoyed if they have another fake out death with John Snow though. Twice. I mean. It, it it would be amazing if it was real. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, was and it? He actually died. Yeah. Oh, that I would be. I would be floored. That would be so cool. I know. Yeah, but but if they resurrect, but if they resurrected him though, uh, but not by a means of doing some voodoo magic like Doros doing it, but like Barrick having to die and transfer his like soul into John or something. You know what I'm saying? I also am worried. On the other hand, now they're going after years of flippantly killing people. They're going in the opposite direction, you know, having people easily survive the battle with the dragon and stuff. I'm scared that they'll go into a certain death situation and have, like, one person die. Um, well, if that one person is someone like Tormund, who maybe, yeah. like, you know... Yeah, but what, what, what if it's just, John? like... What if it's just Thoros and red shirts? Well, like, the one character we care about the least? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm kind of worried that that's going to be the case, that everyone else is too popular for them to kill him off. And I'll feel cheated if that's the case. Like, it's weird. I, I love a lot of these characters. They're some of my favorites in the show. I'll feel cheated if someone doesn't die. I want to be emotionally punished next week. Mm. D- do you disagree? You know what the wild card is in all of this, I just realized? Gendry? No, no. Gendry, I think, has plot armor at this point. He just got brought back, so... And he has to he has to make the weapons. Mm-hmm. Benjen. Oh, yeah, yeah, because he's still out there in the north, and he could come in and do, like, a last-minute save. Well, I don't know about that, because I don't know what he could possibly do to save them. <laughs> you know, he's just one guy. Just get, like, fucking slaughtered. Yeah, but he might join up with the fight. That's certainly true. Like, they just encounter him along the way. Like, that would be really cool. Yeah, I could see him joining Do you up. think Bran's going to be able to do anything from Winterfell to, like, help them, um, oh, you know, psychically? Oh, yeah. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's any kind of creatures he could warg into. I, I That's too good an opportunity to not factor in. I think... And then Benjen, if he comes in, you know, he and John had such a good relationship. That'll be yet another good reunion. Yeah, I think that's actually something that'll almost certainly happen. I can guarantee you uh, a couple of things I think will happen. 
I think Beric and John will probably talk about uh, being resurrected by the Lord of Light. Without a doubt. I think that Arya will somehow get mentioned amongst John the Hound, Gendry in some form or way. Um, I think we'll get another Brienne joke out of Tormund. Um, it could even be a very tragic one. Definitely. Imagine if Tormund's like dying. He's like, tell her I loved her like a bear. Oh, God, that'd be sad. You know, just whatever. I mean, it would be kind of cheesy. but um, Oh, incredibly so. And another thing I can almost probably guarantee I think might happen is um, it's it's a really good opportunity for John to uh, give Longclaw back to Jorah. Yeah, absolutely. That'll probably be a moment there. Do you think that, like, Jorah's going to, like, suss out John, though, in, in terms of his, like, what he thinks about Daenerys? Like, don't you be creeping up on my, on my girl, son. I don't know if that's going to happen yet. Oh, okay. I think the one benefit of having this small crew, as illogical as it is, is that this does give us room for characters. I know, Like, Thank the more God. I talk about this, the more I'm thinking about it, like, this could be a good character episode, and it's making me kind of excited the more I think about it. Now, how do you think, ultimately... Um, it all ends. Do you still maintain that Danny swoops in with the dragons, or do you think something else happens that maybe we're just not seeing? Yeah, and the way they're showing her looking so concerned, yes, I think dragons come into play for sure. What makes her, like, what tips her off that something's not right? Like, how could she possibly know? I don't know. Bran, maybe? Oh, I like that. I like that. Yes, that's good. Yes somehow reaches out to either Tyrion or her. Yeah. Imagine if like Bran like wargs into Tyrion. Tyrion's got his oh, eyes rolled God. back and, and he Hodor starts talking to like Danny as Bran. Oh God, that's unsettling. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I think that's the most likely way that happens, which would be interesting. Yeah, that's oh, that's really cool. Do you think we see Jon square off against the Night King? I don't think they're ever going to have their one-on-one showdown until the very end of the show because it's going to be so epic when it happens. Um, I think he'll do his usual thing where he stares at John and, like, does this come at me, bro thing. And I think they'll get very close, but I think we'll be denied that confrontation. Because it's the kind of thing that really just is going to happen once and it's going to be huge. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had a theory recently about the Night King, and the theory goes something like, I have this uh, idea that Valyrian steel and dragonglass, it'll be like kind of like a plot twist moment when it's revealed that that does not work on the Night King. It works on his, like, lieutenants and what have you, the oh, Everwhite Walkers. Shit, that would be interesting. But it can't, yeah, and they can't figure out how to actually defeat him. Huh, that'll be fucking fascinating, yeah. That's... Because, like, Sam's trying to, remember, Sam's trying to figure out the way how to defeat the White Walkers still, but Sam already knows that Valyrian Steel works, so I don't understand what he's actually looking for. God damn, that's interesting... So maybe the Old Town plot will come somewhere and there is another true ultimate secret weapon. Yeah, that's interesting. And I still maintain it has something to do, and I think I said this last week, I'll say it again. I still maintain it has something to do with the uh, spiral drawings and that being a representation for time. Because if you believe that the Blood Raven is truly Bran as an older person and you know Bran has the ability to travel through time... I think Bran will open up a door in time and somebody will have to like go back and change something that would ultimately allow for them to be able to defeat the Night King. But whoever gets sent back won't be able to come back once that uh, loophole is closed. Had we had we seen 
what the spirals meant. Didn't the Children of the Forest make them? Didn't they kind of answer that last season? They do. And they, yeah, but we don't know what they represent and what they mean. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, Matt, you need to be in the goddamn writer's room. That's, that's <laughs> what I keep getting from all of this. All right, all right. So we don't know, have a title for next week's episode. By the time this episode is posted, we we might have a title for it. Uh, what would you call the title for next week's episode if you had the ability to, to choose? Yeah, it does seem like next week should have been the East Watch. Oh, no, I, I totally disagree because um, they're going to be far beyond each East yeah, Watch. Yeah, that's true. Um I have a very appropriate title, and once I say it, I don't think you'll. Uh, I don't think you'll want to select anything else. Are you ready for this? Let's hear it. The long night. Ah! Holy shit! Oh my god, Matt, that would be so good. Because I, like Fuck. I said, I have a feeling that this is something that's going to take place over the course of a long period of time god for John and his it, crew. So you know. Yeah. So that's it'll be the fantastic. longest night of their lives. <laughs> oh my god, that's so good. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm praying that that is the episode title. So, we'll see. Next week's episode is directed by Alan Taylor, who famously directed uh, the last two episodes of season one, went on to direct four episodes in season two, and then that granted him the ability to go on to Hollywood, where he directed uh, Thor of the Dark World, Terminator Genesis. And after those two films didn't do necessarily so well, he's now back doing Game of Thrones. It's his only episode of the season. And he's got a massive budget, presumably. Presumably. So, you do not want to miss this one, folks. Uh, whatever episode six is called, it is sure to be a great one. Will, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Mavericks Movies. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Series review of Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 5, titled Eastwatch, under the banner of the Next Best Picture podcast. Next Best Series is a podcast exclusive for the time being on nextbestpicture.com. With your feedback and support, we will hopefully be expanding this area of the site to include more television reviews, Emmys coverage, and more. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Player FM, and CastBox. Be sure to also to leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate that. We will see you for episode six, the penultimate episode, a.k.a. the episode nine of season seven, even though there is not nine episodes. We will see you all next time. I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life. But perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our king. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply